Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I'm glad you, you decided to join me today. This is, uh, this, is a, this is a good time. It's a great time to be alive. I have psychiatrist Owen Muir on the episode today. Uh, I just realized I might be butchered. It's either Murr or Muir. I, just re- I have no idea how to pronounce his name. But we're going to trudge on anyway. Um, he is a doctor at brooklynminds.com. Check him out, uh, where he offers psychiatry, deep TMS treatment, and psychotherapy. And, of course, we're going to talk about what TMS treatment is during the episode, so stay tuned for that. Uh, he's a psychiatrist and, more importantly, an advocate for his patients and their recovery. The goal of psychiatry and even psychopharmacology should be to enable full, rich lives. Mental illness can impair your freedom, so in a collaborative approach, he seeks to discover what is hampering your satisfaction, ergo your stress, side effects, work-life balance, relationship, sexual problems, or symptoms of psychiatric illness. In this episode, we talk about all the things. Uh, He talks about how he has bipolar disorder, and in his third year of residency, he, uh, he had to check himself into uh, uh, a psychiatric uh, or a mental health facility. Um, and, and the reason, the reason is fascinating. He, he checked himself in for uh, suicidal ideations. And w- what triggered that is something that we've talked about, but briefly in, in past episodes. So you want to check that out. And we also talk about... Um, why you shouldn't sleep in on the weekend. Sleep is so huge. It's downplayed in terms of its relationship to suicidality. And the research, we get into the research on uh, the, the meds that are prescribed for suicidality. And are they effective? What, what say ye about lithium, ketamine, and clozapine? Oh, yeah, we get into it. Um, and then what I love is we, we talk about how humans are so bad at causation. We think we know what led to what, but we're horrible. We're horrible at figuring out uh, what what led to B. Was it A? We always think it's A, but sometimes it's not A. Sometimes uh, C led to, to B. Um, and then the importance of putting a question mark at the end of your sentences instead of an exclamation point. We talk about all that and so much more. This is one of those episodes where I was taking a copious amount of notes. I just like using the word copious. Um, and, of course, we talk about how to feel understood and why that's so important. Um, if you haven't, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. And with that said, let's jump into the episode. Yeah, man, this is it's, uh, it's an exciting time to... Uh, uh, to to be in his field, his mental health field, and uh, and I know that you're, you know, you're the, are you the CEO and founder of Brooklyn Mines, or <laughs> no? Thank God. Um, I uh, my my wife, Carlene McMillan, is the CEO and co-founder of Brooklyn Mines. I am the chief innovation officer. Ooh, I, I like I like that title, chief innovation officer. What what does that mean? So, um, well, we were trying to figure out the actual like title for, for what you do. And, you know, when it's a, when you run a startup, um, all those titles are kind of like, meh. 
Uh, and then you learn how important those roles actually are when you start dealing with like serious actual business people. Um, I was originally originally had the title of chief service officer, which is like above chief medical officer, which we didn't have. But basically, I, I don't I don't do that stuff. What I do is I come up with new ways of uh, treating conditions, new ways of training people to treat mental health problems, and new ways of paying for that care. And as the person in charge of coming up with new ways to do stuff, um, innovation officers is the name for that. So what? All right. So I, I love this idea of coming up with new ways to treat mental health. Um, and because I know that you are one of the, the techniques that you employ is uh, TMS. Um, that is correct. And can you talk to us about what TMS is and, and how that's used? Sure. Um, I, I'll also just mention because you'll probably want to get to it later. I am a CEO uh, of our sister company, uh, Sphere, S-P-H-E-Y-R, which is a consulting firm. And the job of Sphere you'll hear about later. But it's basically like how do I solve all those problems with payment and getting people to actually get care, et cetera? Well, we had to create another thing that let us kind of do that interfacing. Um, and so I co-run that with uh, Michelle Burnaby, who's one of my team members, and uh, Dave Belinsky, who is um, a, uh, a wonderful person in the, in the benefits space um, who kind of – like TMS is awesome, and you're going to hear that in, in just a second, but it doesn't work without a way to get it to people. And it's kind of like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Um, and so transcranial magnetic stimulation is a way of directly – changing how neurons in the brain fire without using any medicine whatsoever. It is using magnetic fields to induce an electrical field in the circuits in your brain uh, and those wires we call axons. Um, and it's just using basic pro you know, physics principles to change how our brain fires, um, which sounds pretty far out there. Uh, and it turns out it's a really unbelievably powerful uh, technology for helping people get better and created the kind of moral imperative to do what we're doing. And now this transcranial, uh, the, the TMS in terms of its use for people who are struggling with suicidality, how, how do you use that? So, um, the, until recently it wasn't something we used in people who are suicidal generally. In fact, almost no treatments in all of psychiatry have any evidence for using people who are suicidal, which doesn't mean we don't use them all the time. It just means we've done no actual research or study to determine if they'll work. Because every single antidepressant drug everyone ever takes, excluded from the studies on those medications, are suicidal people. Wait, so you're crazy, right? So yeah, you're, no, you're telling me that all this research that I've been reading about lithium and and, and how uh, effective it's been, uh, there's even research showing that in countries where they don't have lithium in their water, uh, that there's an increase in suicidality. Um, that there's been no studies to show the efficacy of any of these drugs on people who are struggling with suicide. What's the what so, is so the logic for that? So that's not entirely true. They, they, well, uh, it's, it, I mean, it's a, it's an insidious logic that makes sense when you understand it, but it doesn't make you any happier. All the data on lithium, it's important to understand, is from studies on bipolar disorder. But none of those studies was designed to study suicide. 
So everything that we know about lithium and its effects on suicide is inferred from research on bipolar disorder. When you pool enough of those studies, you find the remarkable finding that in people given lithium for bipolar disorder and for people who have a tiny bit in the groundwater, um, there emerges from the data a trend towards reduced completed suicide. That does not mean lithium is a treatment for suicidal people. It means it's a good drug in bipolar disorder, and that means less people complete suicide who have bipolar disorder who take lithium if you look at enough of them. But telling causation from that isn't something we can do because none of those data sets were designed to determine causation around suicidality. There is one medication that has ever been studied for this, and it is clozapine, an antipsychotic medication, uh, where in a study called the Intercept Trial, they compared it to olanzapine in people with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and determined there were less suicide attempts and less suicidal behavior on clozapine than on olanzapine. That and ECT were the only things we had for a very long time. Every antidepressant medication trial that's ever been run has had as an exclusion criteria people who are actively suicidal at baseline. Ketamine does have data for suicidal people, and that's a new, new finding and a, and a new treatment. And they're actually going for an FDA approval for acute suicidality for S-ketamine. But yeah, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, zero studies let you in if you're suicidal. Now, why? Well, it turns out it's a huge pain in the ass when someone kills themselves in your FDA trial. Because then the FDA is like, did this drug kill them? Um, and you're like, no, of course not. They were suicidal when they walked in. Well, why did you let us – it's still a reportable event. And basically because of administrative hassle and like ethically, you don't want people dying in your study. Now, of course, we recognize in other health conditions this is bonkers, right? And we have sick people in cancer trials because it's fucking cancer and that could kill you. It's dangerous. But in mental health conditions, we exclude the sickest patients in terms of suicidality from our studies by and large of medications because we don't want the hassle of having them actually complete suicide in the study. And then we'd have to report that on the label of the drug saying, this drug makes you kill yourself according to the FDA. Beware. That, so that's why we don't do it. Uh, that completely makes sense. Owen. Uh, and yeah, it sucks, right? It, it completely sucks. And, uh, it, and I, I'm sure are there now, are there countries that do allow for that kind of thing to go down? No, <laughs> This isn't this isn't this isn't country by country. This is there are there are ethics around research and their institutional review boards, quite rightly, to protect vulnerable people and psychiatric patients are the most vulnerable populations from unethical researchers who want to do things like see if people will die in their study. Now, again, in other fields of human endeavor, we take serious things seriously. And for reasons that are complicated in mental illness, we don't. So, I, I, and what I love about you is even though you're a psychiatrist, and, and I say even, see, even I said even though, because I feel like the uh, imagery of psychiatry is, is uh, you know, somebody walks in your office and you just dose them up with drugs. But what, what I'm fascinated in and what made me reach out to you is the fact that you take a very collaborative uh, uh, approach to uh, someone's uh, mental health treatment and it's not just take some pills twice a day and I'll see you in a month. Uh, yeah. Of course, for people who come in with, uh, who come into you with 
uh, suicidality. What is that collaborative approach or comprehensive? So, so, I mean, you you figured it out pretty well. Uh, Suicide is something that's really important to me. And um, it's for a bunch of reasons. Um, My grandfather died by suicide. Uh, My dad had to cut him down when he was five years old. So this is part of my family inheritance. Suicide runs in families. We know this. And I went to medical school to become a child psychiatrist because I wanted to help people not kill themselves, essentially. And I did residency training, and they teach you how to prescribe medicine. And I was lucky enough at my program, they taught me uh, at at Zucker Hillside Hospital, um, where I trained for adult residency, and NYU Bellevue, where I trained for uh, child psychiatry. We really had some very, very sick people. And I learned that medicine only goes so far. And so I needed to look for other, other answers for these problems. And, and one of them turned out to be like, while we were busy ignoring suicidality in, in medication trials, psychotherapy has research with very, very sick, very suicidal people, mostly with personality disorders, for treatments that are effective at reducing suicide attempts and we believe completed suicide. And so I was like, wait, wait a minute, hold on. I went to fucking medical school to learn how to prescribe all these drugs, and they don't fucking work or have any evidence for what I'm doing. I hope swearing's okay. Um, hey, I, I, and passion, passion is always okay. So, I mean, I was aghast essentially, and I was a huge failure as a doctor. And I saw my patients not doing well in therapy, and I felt like it was bullshit. Um, and and meanwhile, I have bipolar disorder, and in my third year of residency, I was admitted to the hospital because I was suicidal. And, uh, you know, that was a, that was a real, real experience. Um, and when I got out, I started thinking quite a bit differently about hospitalization and about how it helps or doesn't help with suicidal people. And, and the data is pretty strong. Your risk of completed suicide is highest after you're discharged from the hospital. And it's not that much lower actually in the hospital. And we're talking 200 times higher than baseline. So I think we're killing people by hospitalizing them. We just don't we don't know when because it happens after they leave the hospital. Now, you know, when we talk about mental health, one of the things we're we're always emphasizing is a routine. And is part of that increase due to a change in routine, a transition? We know that transitions in our lives for good or bad uh, is where we can drop the ball on things. uh, Yeah. So so. This is where, like, I can't tell you why it happens. Okay. I'd be lying if I could. I can tell you we know that it does happen, and we have some natural experiments to prove things one way or the other. So, like, deinstitutionalization, when Kennedy closed the state hospitals or kicked most people out, um, there's no change in suicide rate. So we went from, like, you know, on, on where do you live? San, uh, well, I live in Los Angeles, but I'm currently okay. in San Diego. Okay. Uh, on, on the East Coast in, in New York, we have a couple of state hospitals near me. One of them is on Long Island, and it's called Pilgrim State. And that had 60,000 people living there at its peak. We emptied that place. There are like 300, 400 people left to Pilgrim. And the suicide rate didn't change. So what were we doing? Maybe some good. Like, it's better than being in jail, which is where we put people now. Um, we call that trans-institutionalization. Uh, instead of being in one institution, you're in another, which is probably less compassionate. Um, 
but but I don't think hospitalization for some things like acute suicidality, if we have meaningfully modifiable risk factors, well, then we can attempt to modify them with hospitalization. But we shouldn't kid ourselves in thinking there's no risk in doing that because there is very serious risk. And practically from my own experience, I can tell you when I walked out of the hospital, all that imagined safety I had around me was gone in an instant. And I had to figure out how to keep myself safe. And that was terrifying when you're when you're sick, especially. Most of us get to walk around and, you know, you could kill yourself any second, jump in front of a car, you could jump in front of the subway. You don't think about it like that. You think like I'm going to work and I'm crossing the street and I'm going to wait and not not get hit by that bus because that's what you do. You don't have to think about how easy it would be to take that extra step and die. And for people who are dealing with suicidal thoughts, they they think that whether they want to or not, basically. And you go from an environment of like imagined complete safety, can't possibly do anything, and people kill themselves in hospitals all the time. But uh, you, you walk out into the world again, and there's no one keeping you safe but you. And I think that's pretty terrifying. And we also discharge people after there is literally no plausible way biologically we have done anything to modify their underlying condition. Antidepressant medications take at minimum two to three weeks to work. We discharge people after seven days. And is that more of an insurance thing that we are discharging people well, yeah, after seven days? Yeah, but, but I actually agree with them because like hospitals kill people. <laughs> so why keep them there? Now, there are people who are trying to change how this works, because right now, psychiatric hospitalization has less resources and less tools available to help doctors help patients than outpatient care. And my colleague, Nolan Williams at Stanford, took this very seriously. And so he published a paper on transcranial magnetic stimulation given in a new way at a higher dose in a quicker period of time that works for acute suicidality. And that's a game changer. So for, for people who want to access that, then, I, I mean, I would assume that the barrier to that type of treatment would be financial for most people. Um, well, so it's twofold. One, there's only one place other than Nolan's lab that does it, and that's my office. Um, there are a couple, I mean, there are a few places in the country that probably know how to do it and maybe do some version of it. But um, the thing he does involves neuronavigation, and uh, that involves a scanner. And we use a different technology to administer the TMS called the H-Coil um, by the Brainsway Company. It's actually a patent owned by the U.S. government um, and licensed to Brainsway, which is an Israeli company, uh, and close partners um, with, with us. We, we work with them on research and, and treatment. They're really a remarkable science. Um, but you can't – like giving someone TMS 10 times a day, five days in a row is really logistically a huge – pain in the neck and you need a lot of staffing, scheduling, administration, financial workarounds, blah, 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 to be able to pull it off. And most psychiatrists practice alone in one office with a chair and a couch and not a whole staff of administrators dealing with insurance. Um, you know, this is hard to do and so people don't do it. So financial is one barrier, which I'm working to solve, and the other is is uh, how complex it is to deliver this care. All right. So if we can go back just a little bit to your, you've been hospital. Now, what led you 
uh, to the hospitalization? You said it was your third year. Was it the stress? Was it the the, the staying you know, up late? I, 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 I don't think the staying up late helped. Um, actually, you know, overnight shifts, 24-hour shifts is what we did. Um, but I, I, I have bipolar disorder, and it was a change of seasons. It was spring. That's the you know, summer, in my case. Uh, it, that was the problem. I'd love to pretend it was something fancier, but it wasn't. Um, and, you know, um, there's an underlying biology, and kind of can't ignore that. And as I mentioned, you know, antidepressants don't have evidence for suicide. In bipolar disorder, we have very few medications for bipolar depression, and they don't work very well. So, you know, the medication I was on wasn't that helpful, it turns out. And, you know, my brain went to the place that people with bipolar disorders' brains go when things are going wrong, and that's depression and, in some cases, thinking of suicide. I'm so fascinated because I, I was reading about how, uh, in you know, we used to think that it was wintertime when uh, there would be an increase, but really it's uh, from summer to fall, that change of seasons, as you said, that extra amount of daylight uh, that yep. that people experience and it throws off our circadian rhythm and then it, it makes us yep. feel like we should be doing more because there's more yep. sunlight and it's like when can I get off this goddamn uh, uh, Ferris wheel this hamster wheel right and that causes agitation and frustration and stress and it becomes this domino effect and then it throws off our sleep was that like your experience? And, and if, can you explain that from like a, 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 a biological point of view of, of what's really happening and why the change of seasons affects so, a lot of people? Yeah. Um, it, so the, it, it, there are some illnesses that are more circadian than, than others. And I think classic bipolar disorder is a circadian rhythm dysfunction with a mood component, not the other way around. When I uh, was discharged from the hospital, I my psychiatrist was, of course, on vacation at the time. Uh, oh, and I'm sorry. People I, don't I, I want to uh, just just for the listeners. Can you explain yeah. what circ what a circadian rhythm is for people yeah. who may not know? Thank and you. Then, I appreciate please, it. Thank you. Science science terminology. Circadian rhythm just means rhythms of day and night. How much light there is in the day. How much light there is at night. How long of a day it is. And when the sun travels around the Earth, or the other way around, the Earth travels around the sun, uh, and there's a tilting of the Earth in that process, uh, the amount of daylight in the day changes. And it's actually like a function of Euclidean geometry. You could old Euclid from Greek times, you know, plotted this out. There's an elliptical orbit. And that means that some days are longer and some days are shorter, and the Earth is spinning around, gives us day and night, and that changes for us in a predictable pattern. And if you remember Isaac Newton, uh, he, he during the last major pandemic, uh, one of the major pandemics, the Black Plague, uh, he had to go live in the country with his mom because uh, he had to get out of London because London was bad during the bubonic plague. And he was super bored, and so he invented calculus. And, and, and calculus was invented basically to make sense of physics because um, he had questions he wanted to answer. And one of those questions is like, how fast is something changing? And so the calculus equation that describes how much the rate of change of daylight is reaches its maximal value in the second and third week of October. And then there's another peak in the spring right before the changeover to spring around daylight savings time. 
And those are the two highest risk times of the year for people with bipolar disorder and other seasonal mood disorders for getting depressed, more or less. Different things happen to your mood in the summer when the days are long and there's more daylight. But it turns out there's a there's a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It basically is like before you get you can't it's you can't see it. And there are neurons in your eye. There are you know rods and cones. And there's one more one more photoreceptor which we didn't learn about till the 90s. And that just responds to like light of day, blue wavelength light. And it only projects to the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the clock. And so how much day there is turns out to be a crucial bit of information for your brain. And changes in that information profoundly impact our mood and sleep, which can, again, change how much light you get in the day. And it turns out a treatment for acute mania and bipolar disorder is wearing glasses that block blue wavelength light. That's it. 70% remission of acute mania by wearing sunglasses. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What, are you telling me sunglasses? Very specific sunglasses for lasers, but yes. And uh, so can you repeat the, the, the name of the sunglasses again? Well, I, I could, but it won't help because it's really long and you can get them on Amazon for $8 and I can share that link with you. I um, but they, they did a study on, on these and they, they call it acute, uh, uh, rather virtual darkness treatment. So they took people in an inpatient unit and they gave them either placebo glasses that didn't block this wavelength, 460 nanometers, or they gave them glasses to wear 14 hours a day, most of the day, it did. And when people wore these, when they were manic, what they found was they were not manic much longer because they were living in, as far as their brain was concerned, darkness. And that made the mania go away. And so is this something that you would recommend for people to wear during those periods of the year? or So, so I give these out to patients all the time. I say, when you get home and it's dusk, put these on. Because your brain, you know, we should be in sync with light and dark and night and day because that's how we evolved. And our brains are looking for that. And computer screens have a lot of blue light pumped out. So do TVs and iPads and phones and stuff. And if you wear these glasses at night, then your brain thinks it's dark even if you're futzing around on your laptop. And so I, I have a pair of them. I give them to my patients. All. I just order them by, like, the case. Uh, because it's a great way to help you fall asleep if you've already been, as far as your brain is concerned, in darkness for four hours before bed. Matt, you, you, I think you just saved my life right there with that because I have it's been good shit. trying to figure out this whole, there's so much light. I'm like, God, it's 8 o'clock and there's still yep. light out. Like, am I supposed to be writing a novel or something? Like, what the <laughs> Jesus? Should yeah. I take a CrossFit yeah. class? What am I? God, I just like I want to watch. Like I love movies, and I and I, I read somewhere that there's a season for for everything, and that um, winter is a great time for movies, and summer is a great time, I think, for music or reading. I forget which one it is, and spring is a good time for music or whatever. And I was like, why is that? And then I realized. Yeah, winter in a in a uh, movies in the winter because it gets darker sooner, and that's when you want to watch mm -hmm. movies when it's dark. And I'm mm -hmm. like, I can't enjoy even watching TV because it's so uh, bright out. You know, it's not it doesn't yep. have the same uh, ambiance or effect. Yep, 
it's that it's i mean it's it's kind of bonkers that it's like you know it's not that simple but it's kind of that simple that day and night are powerful and that we you know we are creatures of this earth we were born here we evolved here and we are still subject to light and dark and the sun to regulate our sleep and wake and mood so uh, you know having bipolar disorder and 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 it and not like this is something that is uh just something that you have to be aware of. We all should be aware of our sleep. Are there other yeah. strategies or tactics that you have for people? So, uh, because sleep is such a big, what I find is that I can sleep. Okay. I fight sleep at night though. Like there's, I, and it may be because of the sunlight where there's an agitation that sets in. I'm fine during the day, but at night I'm kind of like, and I don't know, like there's this small window between uh, the evening and bedtime where I kind of feel agitated. And I'm like, I should go to bed. But like, I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to go. It's like I'm a nine year old. Um, yeah. And, and do you do you uh, is there an understanding of that or uh, uh, there is and it would take a, a little while. But the short version is like sleep's important and you should do it regularly. That, like go to bed at the same time every night. It's a learned behavior. Wake up at the same time every morning. Don't sleep in. Not even on a weekend. And you'll be better. Not not even on a weekend. There's there's a therapy for bipolar disorder called IPSRT, interpersonal social rhythms therapy, and it basically takes interpersonal therapy and adds this understanding of day and night, and has you track it. And it's remarkable because. For people with bipolar disorder, you can look at their patterns of of sleep and wake and their patterns of mood and see how they like line up, but not in ways that are super obvious before you've tracked it. So I had a 16-year-old girl I worked with at Bellevue, and we looked at her patterns of her mood and when she was sleeping. And it, and it turned out when she had like a three-day weekend, she would sleep in to like 10. And then like clockwork, three days later, she'd get depressed for, for a week or, or more. And so every time she had one of those long weekends, she'd come in a couple days later and be like, I don't know why I feel so bad. And then we looked at her tracking and we're like, well, look, this happens every time. She's like, wait, so it's me sleeping in on the weekend? That means a couple days later I feel like dying? Uh, yeah, actually. And so she fixed that, and we didn't need to adjust any medications. Uh, she just didn't have that problem all the time anymore. Oh, my God. The three days later. Uh, that is just like, yeah. like working out. So like I'll work yep. out or like on a do a hard workout Monday and it won't be till Wednesday or Thursday where I'm like, oh, yeah, I feel every bit of that now. Yep. Humans are really bad at causation. And so like figuring out that that was the thing. Like I can tell someone like you should sleep regularly. And they're like, yeah, I know. But like fun. <laughs> I want to go have it. And and OK, um, it's not until people really see the the you know, hopefully the repeated consequences of something that they can put the pieces together in a way that help them understand so they can change their behavior. Yeah. So uh, it sounds to me like nobody should have children. Oh, like if we're talking, that, to, if we're talking about sleep, if we're talking about staying on a sleep schedule, like if there's anything that disrupts your sleep, it's having a baby. Yes, I have twin children and that's true. So what's the what's your workaround for that? 
Uh, well, I mean, we got night nurse because we had to. Okay. For, 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 for me, basically. We for, were lucky enough to be able to do it, but. All right, for the impoverished people out there with children. Yeah. <laughs> Can't afford it. Well, I mean, I, I was, I was, I mean, I'm not, not impoverished by that too. Um, I was a resident. It was just like, I was gonna, you know, for, for, for us, my wife and I are both doctors and like we had enough, enough discretionary income just, uh, to make that choice. And we were very lucky to be able to do it. Um, what I do think it means is that for everybody who's thinking of having a kid, like that's a good time to assume stuff's going to go wrong with your mental health. And so maybe getting, you know, getting some mental health care at that time might make a lot of sense. And, you know, dads, you're important. At night, you may want to get up so mom can sleep through the night. But early childhood's a time-limited experience. And good sleep training, our kids were sleep trained in like nine weeks. Wait, wait, from, you mean at nine weeks old? Yep, yep. So, okay, I, I, there's two things I want to unpack. One is um, the this is the importance of, you know, I, I, I know listeners are like, night nanny, come on, man. Um, grandparents. Yeah, it's not forever. It's for nine yeah, Right, weeks. right. But I, I understand. But what I'm saying is this is the importance of having grandparents. You family, know, yeah. Family, having family around, people who can, uh, that extended family, that support. I mean, we, we I feel like we live in a society where it's all about uh, as soon as you're, you're old enough, like you, you have to move away and, and go prove yourself to the world or to the family. And it's the exact opposite of what really works for us. Uh, we're very tribal and stay connected. We know that suicides go up with people who, uh, who live overseas or uh, especially if they don't have any family or friends and trying to reestablish roots. It's, it's about that social connection. So that, that idea of having your parents, grandmama and grandpapa either moving in with you or living close to them, that was something I always uh, looked down upon when I was younger. But now I'm realizing the value of that, especially, like you said, when you're, when you're having kids. But uh, now the sleep training, was that something that y- you trained the, the night, babies on? That, or did you, that's, the night nurse? that's why the night nurse. The night wow. nurse is an expert behaviorist, Janelle. And Janelle is amazing and, can, and just understands behaviorism and how people you know, learn like like nobody else and so she got our kids trained to learn how to sleep from from nine weeks she didn't wait till their six months and spring it on them so you know it's it's an ex, it's an expense but it's not for that long and i have i have you know bipolar disorder and i didn't get sick during during that period of time at all i haven't had a, you know since tms came into my life uh as a treatment that i got before i was giving it to other people um you know it hasn't really been a problem which is really nice. Now, and, this, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no. So like um, sleep super important from the beginning of your life on. <laughs> it sounds like we like a, I know a lot of adults that need a night nurse. Do, do, is there anything yes. that you <laughs> right? Is there yes, something I you <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more? God, if someone would tuck me in at night and make sure I turn the lights off and oh, yeah, that'd be great. Are, are there things that you learned from the night nurse that you've applied to yourself totally, or taught other? Please totally. share all of it. Don't don't hold back on any of that. <laughs> well, so luckily it's not a secret. There's there the the approach to this is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in adults. Um, but like this is some basic stuff. Don't go to bed till you're tired. When you're tired, go to bed. 
If you're laying in bed worrying about sleeping, get out of bed because associating bed and sleep with uh, with anxiety means bed is a place where you won't sleep for adults. For kids, you go to bed at the same time every night. You wake up at the same time every day. The other reason we got a night nurse and not just a family member is because we had twins. And if they're out of sync, oh, God, you're dead. Um, so we had to have someone who, like, oh, she's actually like a twin person. That's all she does is twins getting to bed at the same time. I had a colleague who, who, she, who she worked with later who is a sleep medicine child psychiatrist. And, like, she had to be schooled on this. <laughs> so basically they're going to bed at the same time every night. They're being fed at the same time when they wake up. And they, they get up at the same time. And they take naps at the same time. When one goes to sleep, so does the other when you have twins. And by keeping that a super regular thing, the bedtime routine is sacrosanct. You do not F with it. They you know, have their milk. They have their bath. They have their jammies. And they're in their bed. And then you leave them alone. And this means like when they start crying at night, you have to ignore them. And this is hard for parents. Because what happens when you have kids who are crying and, and you're like, let's wait, just wait a little bit longer, honey. Well, you wait 10 minutes and they learn to cry for 11. You wait 20, they learn to cry for 22. They will break you if you're breakable. And so you have to, you know, when you're sleep training kids, tolerate for a couple nights the distress of listening to your children cry and not helping them. Because they'll eventually be like, okay, this crying thing is not working. Let's just give it up and go to bed. And it's really about adults not being able to tolerate their kids' distress that makes kids get you know, comforted at night. And that means they stay up because they love being comforted. This is awesome. I can spend more time with my parents. Kids, babies are great behaviorists of their parents. They play us like a fiddle. I, I love that you said uh, it's about the parents not being able to take their kids' distress. Um, I, I was reading somewhere that, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, humans throughout history, we all slept together, like in, yep. whether it was in a teepee or a cave or, or by the fire. So there, there, were, there weren't bedrooms. There, there wasn't, you know, put the kid in one room and, and we go to sleep in another. And so it makes sense that a lot of parents are struggling with, um, you know, how to, how to train their babies to sleep at night and that. And also, it also explains why we do want to rush in when um, the the kid, uh, when the baby cries. It just makes sense. Uh, it's, it's something that, um, you know, I, I think that as we progress, quote unquote, and uh, become more innovative, that these uh, inclinations or tendencies in us, uh, they're, not, they're not refreshed for the public. Right. Like there's yeah, like there's, you know, when we went from uh, sleeping in a teepee or caves or or whatever and, and together and then we went into three and four and ten bedroom apartments and, you know, like no one discussed like, all right, here's what's going to happen. Here's what you're going to want to do. And here's what you should do like that. These yeah. conversations aren't aren't had enough. And uh, and I think that uh, it would we would be more compassionate towards ourselves and towards the people in, in our lives. That's the key. Compassion towards yourself uh, and, and towards others for things they can't change. Like the, all the stuff I'm talking about is just like recognizing basic like biology of how people work. 
and respecting it, things go well. And trying to ignore it, things go badly. Now, because we're talking about circadian rhythm and, and sleep, I, I really want to stay on this for a little bit longer. The I, I was told that if you, you can, don't want to read or watch anything that's too stimulating because then that gets your fight and flight mode up to speed. What else is part of your sleep routine or, or what do you um, work with your clients on? Well, I got lucky because when I was a little kid, I got introduced to books on tape. And... Books on tape and podcasts have been the most important part of my sleep routine since I was a baby. And I just kept it up. So shows like yours, which is awesome, by the way, very soothing. Um, Roman Mars, 99% Invisible. Um, There's a show called Revolutions, which is super boring play-by-play of Revolutions. Like, and it was the Battle of Ticaronda and the U.S. Revolution and George Washington, then moved south, blah, 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 blah. And it's just enough information to keep my little restless mind engaged, but not enough to keep it interested. Uh, and so I can fall asleep. I don't have to, like, worry about just my mind just kind of looping on other stuff. Um, and so reading or doing anything at all in bed other than sleeping um, and, you know, sex when you're having it, because that's a place for that. Uh sleep and sex are the only two things you should do in bed. So if you're going to read, don't do it in your bed. Preferably don't do it in your bedroom. But if you have a one-bedroom apartment, like sit in a chair with a really dim light and do it there. When you get in bed, that's for sleeping. If you're not tired, get out. Man, I have like 20 books next to my bed stand. Yeah. It does. When I think about it, it weighs heavily on me. It's sabotage. Yeah, yeah. It's weighing heavily on me. It's not that reading at night and doing things quietly isn't an awesome idea. It is. It's just where you do it matters by like two feet. Because we're all Pavlov's dog, right? You ring the bell, we salivate. You get in bed. If you train yourself to sleep in bed, you will sleep when you get in bed. If you've trained yourself to stay awake and be anxious in bed, you get in bed and you will be anxious and not sleep. We, we are learning machines, and we're doing it whether we want to or not is the thing. What's your, so, like, attention. Yeah. What's, what's That's your, how kids train their parents. What's your alarm clock? What are you waking up the, to? You the got sun. the sunlight? Yeah. I don't have shades in my windows. Really? Yep. I, you know what? When I, um, when I stay in Vegas... I, I re- the first time I went to Vegas, I, I was doing a, a week of uh, shows there, seven days, two shows a night, and I was so depressed. I, I was suicidal. I, I called the one eight hundred suicide hotline. Uh, I, I couldn't thank take God it. For that, right? It was, thank man, you don't even. Under- I didn't even understand until I called him. I was like, "What a blessing this is uh, to be able to to talk to someone that uh, where I felt heard, seen, understood." All the things. Yep. It was the most, one of the best conversations. I almost just every now and again, I'm like, I just want to call them because they, they yeah. listen so well. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, and that's, that's like really like, it's a really like, it's important, like as a thing, because like that thing that saved your life, that's the mechanism for which we have the best evidence of saving people's lives is feeling understood.
How do we teach people? I mean, what is that? Can you talk? Can you say <laughs> yeah, that's more? That's my whole. That's my whole jam. Yeah. As to what um, that means, feeling understood. Yeah, it, yeah. So, like, it started when you're a baby, right? And so, when your mom is like putting you down and you're crying at night, there's, 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 you're looking at your parent, your mom, or your dad, or your caregiver, your grandparent, whoever it is, and there's a mirroring that happens between kids and parents, and, and so when a kid cries. The response on the parent's face is to go, oh, you know, sad face. What's what's wrong? And and that response, like you're sad, and I'm coming back at you with sad face, but it's not. <laughs> what is wrong? My dad is so crying. Right. That's not different from what's going on for the kid. And so so that's called marked. So it's different. It's it's identified for the child like flagged as different. I see that you're sad, and I'm sad back, but in a way that says I understand your mind. And that's before we can even talk. Marked contingent mirroring. So our response is sad to sad and flagged as different from you. So if you have non-contingent responses, it's like the kid's crying. You're like, hey, you're doing great. Right. That doesn't make any sense. And just like, you know, when you're an adult and you feel really like invalidated when someone's like, well, your performance at work has been excellent. You're like, I just screwed that up. Why are you lying to me? God. Um, that, that in non-contingentness is a real problem for, for people. And we, so we're learning really early on about 30% of the time adults have to get that right for kids. That's it. Good enough. Doing like an excellent job of interpreting your child's emotional states is actually bad. You want to get it right about 30% of the time, not too much more, not less. And for people who have that attachment that forms, uh, that's secure, that regulates whether as an adult uh, you feel understood easily or not. And so we're always trying to work out in our minds whether what we can hear from people is trustworthy. And and frankly, it's not adaptive to trust people. <laughs> people are awful. <laughs> On average, like you're running an algorithm in your mind, like is this information I should trust to, from basically everyone you're talking to, which is why you can't be like, hey, dude, can you give me $20? I need, I need it. Like if, you know, a friend we trust asks us for 20 bucks, we give it to him if we have it. You know, that's not like a huge like decision. Like, is this guy trying to rip me off? Um, but some rando is like, dude, I need to get fair for the bus and it's 20 bucks. Can you help me out? Like, yeah, no, sorry. Go away. Because we have this really elaborate system to determine who to trust and who not to trust. And when that gets wonky and we feel misunderstood and we're mistrustful of the information that's coming in, it can make you want to die. And that's 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 what suicidality is a lot of time. It's feeling misunderstood. And when someone you called someone in that line and they just listened to you and checked in where if they were getting it and tried to understand how you could be suicidal. And I mean, they think pregnant being solutions like, oh, here's your not suicidal sauce. Like, they don't have that. But the, the act of feeling misunderstood helps you feel coherent, helps your world make sense. And then you don't have to die anymore. So that's how you were in Vegas doing shows. I interrupted you by talking about your coherence. No, no. I mean that, I mean, this is what this is about. I mean, this this podcast is not about me. It's about uh, (laughs) you, the listeners, the people tuning in, the people, the messages I receive who say, you know, I was, I was on the verge and I listened to an episode and uh, I want to stay now and I I feel heard and I feel understood. So, um, 
Therapy it, works, it works when you feel understood and it doesn't work when you don't. And you're allowed to say, I don't feel my therapist understands me. I'm going to get a different one. Because therapy working shouldn't be subtle. My, me and my girlfriend, we have a, a couples therapist, and she's so good. And I love that you said it shouldn't be subtle because every session we look at each other like, holy shit, like that was incredible. Yeah. Like that was powerful. And I, now, granted, we just started working with her, but I, you know, I've, I've worked with other therapists, and I was like, all right. But, but. It's so every session has just been powerfully effective. So I, I understand it resonates with me when you say uh, it's not subtle because it's not a subtle feeling. It's a it's an empowering feeling like, oh, if she's in our corner, we're good. Like we, we you know, we can we can um, take more chances, <laughs> you yeah. know, because we can. It's so you know important. what I mean? And, and so, like tying together that that the, the biological piece, like transcranial magnetic stimulation, changes your your mind about killing yourself within the course of maybe a day, sometimes a few more. But in eighty percent of people, it works in a week, five days. And and what what works means in this context is you can better interpret information from your world and trust things that should be trustworthy, basically. And one of those things that we powerfully know is that we shouldn't kill ourselves. That's bad information that our brain is feeding us. And you can even think suicidal thoughts and not want to kill yourself. Like people do that all the time. Like, like everybody who goes in the subway is like, yeah, I could, I could jump in there. And then they let it go because it's not a big deal. They're not tortured by it. It's just a thing people think. So, and, and the difference is we don't learn to trust how absurd it is that we would end our lives at times when our brain isn't working right and we feel so misunderstood. So basically when someone's saying, I don't trust you, I, I, or, um, you know, this, it's like, I just don't feel understood by you is what they're really saying is like, I feel like mm -hmm. you don't, you don't get me at my, at my core. Well, think about it. Like we grew up in tribes. Like you said, we all live together in our tribe and there are other tribes. Now, when you bump into somebody else, and you talk to them, that's some dangerous shit, right? What are these people going to do to me? I got to work out if this is going to be cool or not. And by the way, this is how racism happens. Um, you know, we see someone different and we, and we just like, we don't know if we can trust them. And systemic racism just plays on that and builds, you know, whole structures of power around that misunderstanding that's built into meeting someone new or someone who doesn't look like us, doesn't come from where we come from. But that system saved our lives for, for a long time. Not trusting people is how humans evolved and stayed safe. Don't go with the bad man in the free candy van. Yes, mom. You learn that really quick. And like you learn when you feel understood, that's when you can trust. And when you can trust, you can learn. So you could you could be a psychology major. You might have been. I don't know. I was. You take whole you take four years of classes about therapy. And it's not therapeutic. The difference is with your couple's therapist, you feel like she understands you. Or he, I don't know. And, uh, and that understanding lets you learn simple shit. <laughs> like maybe check and see if you're getting it right.
Oh, amazing. It's really basic. My whole job as a psychiatrist would be one visit if people would just automatically trust me, which I know they don't <laughs> on average. Think about it. What are things therapists have told you that have been important for you? Say that last part again. What are some things? What are people, things that have said to you that have been important? What saved your life? You know, one of the the important things that have been said to me is that uh, the idea of journaling with my non dominant hand, so that it taps into my nine year old self. So, uh, and I actually uh, I've been doing this more uh, recently. I, I go back and forth between doing this and other forms of journaling. But I will journal for three minutes with my dominant hand and then switch to my non-dominant hand for three minutes. And I'll do that twice. Uh, sometimes it's five, sometimes it's ten, but usually three, uh, just to mm -hmm. get both sides of the brain going. Um, and yep. it was something that one of my therapists recommended to me when I was like going on the road for a couple of weeks and I wasn't going to be able to see her. And I was like, you're going to have to give me a homework assignment. I'm gonna, I need something to anchor myself down and uh and, and that's something that she gave me that has always stuck with me um and then the other thing was learning how to listen so that uh and and how to understand my my girlfriend uh, not my girlfriend now but my previous girlfriend uh in terms of you know I, I was doing what society was doing like me and my girl get an argument and I'd be like, you're crazy. And then I would just leave. You know, I was the avoider. Mm -hmm. She was the chaser. And then she mm -hmm. taught me how to actually listen in, in terms mm -hmm. of one person should be the investigator and one yep. person should be uh, the, the, um, the, the, the one who's, who's speaking. And, and, and not to mix those two. It's to, to be very clear as to who is so asking the questions. Yep. Is awesome. That's emotionally focused therapy or EFT. Yes. Uh, developed uh, by uh, by Sue. What's her last name? God. It's based on attachment. The thing I was talking about with your kid, that Mark contingent mirroring stuff. Yes. Sue took that data set and turned it into a therapy for couples. So what you were learning and the language she put around it, um, that's learning how to build trust. And so the, the amazing thing is when your therapist told you something, you could do it. <laughs> right? You actually did the homework. You listen to what someone said for once because you trusted them. You're, you're right. Yeah, it's it's all about. It really is. It comes down to trust, and then it, like, and don't then be application. So hard on yeah, and then application. <laughs> right, and yeah. it, you you know what I love that you said earlier. You were talking about the books, uh, but like you said something about how. Um, oh my God! What'd you say? Uh, where you do it matters by two feet, and. Yeah. That, that idea of uh, where you do it matters by two feet. And like, that's how close you are to being right on target. And, and, I, and I think a lot of people don't realize in their life, whatever their challenges are, their struggles are, for the most part, you're like two feet away from being right on target, whether it's, you know, uh, asking more questions or listening more or, uh, you know, listening to soothing podcasts or taking the books out of your room. Like these little, these small adjustments um, can have such a huge impact, whether it's sleeping without the blinds on your window or putting on those glasses, right? The, the, the sunglasses, uh, yep. it's like the, these, these small little changes. And, uh, and so that's why I encourage people who are listening to hold on to hope because you're, you're, you're two feet away. You're so close to, uh, to, 
to, to managing 80% of whatever's challenging you right now. Yeah. And, and it is, it's really, it's just, I mean, it's what the hell is wrong with you is just a question mark different from what's wrong with you. What help me understand question mark. So if you can replace the exclamation points in your life with question marks, done therapy. Love it. Uh, Suicide is being sure that you should not be alive. Living is not being so sure that you should die. Can you repeat that one more time? That's so powerful. Yeah. Please. Uh, suicide is being sure that you should die. It's I need to die exclamation point. If you put a question mark at the end of that, that's life. Hope is just going, well, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Let's see. I'm curious to see what comes next. Owen Muir, I I don't know if there's anything left to be said. Is there anything that we haven't uh, discussed in terms of helping people? I know there's so much more we can go into. but uh, I mean, I'd do it again. I'll give you kind of like the short wrap up of your initial question. How do you take care of people who are suicidal comprehensively? Well, you have therapy. You have people who are good at it. You train to do it relentlessly. You talk to each other all the time. So you can hold your own mind in line. Like the way I keep suicidal people out of the hospital is I don't lose my shit. And the way I do that is by talking to my colleagues who are like, dude, calm down. They're probably going to be okay. And so then I don't call the ambulance and they don't go to the hospital just because I'm scared as a psychiatrist. And then they don't have that incurred extra risk. We help each other. We're a tribe. And therapists need their own tribe to help you. I would argue. Uh, and then you take the things that work really well and you use all of them. So transcranial magnetic stimulation turns out to work really well. And so even though it's pain in the ass, we use it. And medications work only so well for some things, but you should know which ones you're using them for. And so we do. Um, and believing in people and teaching the people, like your therapist has to believe in you. <laughs> if they do not believe in you, it will not work. Um if you you have to you have to feel your therapist understands you, and so maybe you need more than one therapist around. If you know, I, one of the things I've learned recently is like, you know, it's I'm a great therapist. I'm really good. Oh my god, I'm a white dude. So some people are just never going to open up to me. And as great as I could be, it doesn't matter because if you can't take that first step into a therapist's office because they don't look a way you can trust, and there's no flag there that says maybe you can trust this person. I mean, I have some, I have some patients, I have patients of all ethnicities, and there's something about our connection, our relationship that lets them trust me no matter what we look like. But for some people, it's really important that we have more therapists of color. Really, really, really important. In most jobs, diversity is like pretty good. Like we, we need it. It's good. It's good for the work culture, blah, blah, blah. But in my field, we need to recognize that any edge we can get in building trust is crucial. So being culturally competent is mandatory and having therapists of color there for people who could can't get past that without a little you know familiarity will do that right if you're if you're if you're if you're queer you want a therapist who you think can understand that and sometimes that means you're not going to talk to a straight therapist which doesn't mean we might not be the best ally ever but you have to build some trust first so you really need diverse teams so whatever someone's going to connect with there's someone there that they can that they can figure it out with, um, and I think group therapy is really important too, because we learn from each other, not just from 
like therapists, but from other people's journeys. I think it's more powerful and frankly more scalable than individual therapy. So I'd say like, you know, how do how do we do it by recognizing hospitals don't solve everything, by constantly learning, and by having some humility around what people are going to trust and what they won't, and realizing that like, if someone's not working out with their doctor or therapist, you get them a different one, because they deserve the choice and they deserve the ability to find a relationship, because that's what it is, with someone they can trust. Thank you so much, Owen. Please tell people where they can find you. Uh, www.brooklynminds.com is the website of our practice. Um, we are working on licensure in many states um, right now, uh, mostly New York. Um, there are, some of us have licenses in other states as well. Um, I have a book that just came out. It's like super expensive. It's an academic book, but you can rent it for $18 on Kindle. So that's cool. Uh, that's called Adolescent Suicide and Self-Injury, Mentalizing Theory and Treatment. And although it's a book for therapists, it's, we tried to make it pretty accessible. Um, and so that exists. Uh, I got a podcast, um, Remotely Possible, An- Uncertainty, Anxiety, and Existential Despair. Um, that's the name of the show. Um, and people can listen to that and hear me talk about, you know, mentalizing and being curious about minds and stuff. And, um, yeah, and now I'm on your show. So that's good. And then last question, I ask this of all my guests, uh, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them? Owen, maybe someone could understand. I love that. Thank you so much for taking this time to be on a podcast. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling 1-800-S-U-I-C-I-D-E or 273-TALK. There's uh, 10 other numbers and emails and chat lines listed in the show notes and in all of the show notes, whether it's for the Trevor Project, uh, LGBTQ, their international links and numbers also. There is someone out there who can and will understand your story and make you feel heard. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks so much, Owen. Love it. Thank you so much for having me.